morning. How are we? Very good. Uh, very good. We're, we're here. We're finally at the end of Galatians, which we started back in January. Very, very exciting. Um, our Call to be Free series. Um, today we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. So I'm going to give you a minute to find that. I'm also going to need some Bible monitors. monitors. Uh, so how about the Turner boys, Jacob and Seth? Jacob was deliberately not making eye contact there, so I got him. So if, that, if you need a Bible, stick your hand in the air. These guys will bring it to you. And if you don't have one at home that's your own, this is our gift to you. Feel free to take it with you. Right, so just while you're looking up uh, chapter 6, verse 11, um, just to say this is like the end of, of the book of Galatians. And it's basically Paul's kind of concluding words to the Galatians. I remember first, the first few times I was asked to do uh, conclusions in school for my schoolwork. Um, and I was pretty rubbish. I didn't really know what to do. And I kind of had this sentence that I would fall back on. I would basically say something along the lines of, I hoped you enjoyed reading this as much as I enjoyed writing it. <laughs> Goodbye. And that was, that was my conclusion. That was pretty much the sum of it, which is pretty a meaningless thing to say and didn't really function as a conclusion. But here Paul is giving us a proper conclusion. This is a, a kind of small paragraph that boils down the heart of what he wants to communicate to the Galatians. These are his final words to them. And unlike my kind of school conclusion, there's no empty words, there's no excess. He paints it really clearly and succinctly. So let's read chapter 6, 11 to 18. And the words are going to come up here on the screen. So, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen. Brilliant. Uh, I love the start of that. I love verse 11 where it says, See what large letters I use as I write to you in my own hand. Kind of makes him sound like a small child with a crayon, like P-A-U-L. Why, why does he start with that? Why does he say that? Why isn't that an important thing? It's clear that Paul is trying to make a point with that sentence. Normally what would happen is a scribe would be the one who would write the letter and then Paul would just stick his signature on at the end so that you knew it was genuine. But here, and the only time he does this is he takes the pen himself and he writes in big letters this like, final paragraph, this conclusion to the Galatians. And why does he do this? He wants to get their attention. He wants them to sit up and listen to the words that he's written in his own hand, even though like, this is in a time where space on a page was actually really economically used because it was really expensive actually to write a letter. So you'd be like very careful, very small script. And Paul's like, no, I'm going to write massive letters to make a point here. So he's kind of telling the Galatians, I really value you. You're worth the cost here. I'm willing to do this to get the point across. So here we are. This is Paul's conclusion. This is the part of Galatians that he's got his highlighter out and he's kind of put it in bold. He's underlined it and he's used caps lock. We're going to look at three things that Paul kind of uh, says in this passage um, that he wants to communicate. Um, a warning, an example, and a reminder. Firstly, he gives them a warning to receive. 
when I was a kid, Easter was a firm favorite. Still a firm favorite. I still enjoy Easter. Um, but I loved the build-up to Easter in church. I loved kind of, you know, Palm Sunday, getting the wee crosses and all that stuff. I loved the arts and crafts, hard-boiled eggs, painting, the, painting them and all that kind of stuff. But obviously, the highlight, the, my favorite thing was the Easter eggs, the chocolate. Very, very exciting. And my, my family had a bit of a weird tradition. Where what we would do is we'd take our Easter eggs and we'd go to the top of the stairs and we'd roll them down and then they would break. I don't know why we did that, but I just kind of grew up assuming everyone would did that. I'd be like, ah, oh, Easter time, stairs and eggs, am I right? And I'd be like, what? What's going on? So I only realized recently that no one else actually does that. But anyway, uh, one year, one of the first years uh, I was getting an Easter egg, I was asked what I wanted, which Easter egg did I want. And I was weighing up all my options, and I decided to go for the cream egg Easter egg. Good choice, right? Very exciting. I know the chocolate has changed recently, and that's a controversial topic, but this isn't the forum for that. We're just going to gloss over that. Emotions are high, I'm sure. But anyway, so I chose the cream egg Easter egg, and there's a very good reason for this, because it came with two normal-sized cream eggs, but also... There's a huge cream egg in the middle, right? A giant one that's like 10 times the size of a normal cream egg. I'm like, I want that one, definitely. And I was so, so excited for it, so excited. So Easter day comes, Easter Sunday, I get the box, and there's the egg there, and I'm ready to consume like a year's amount of sugar in one sitting. I'm so excited for it. Get my two little cream eggs, move them out of the way, and I unwrap the big egg, and obviously what happens? I'm so disappointed. It's hollow. Instead of, you know, a thick outer shell, outer coating of chocolate, and then a kind of huge liters of cream egg goo, it's just a kind of normal, thin kind of chocolate egg. And I'm so gutted, absolutely disappointed, very, very upsetting. And basically, I look back at the package, and there's nothing on the package to my kind of childlike eyes to indicate that that's what was going to be the case. There was no kind of warning. There's no huge cream egg in here. I felt betrayed. I felt that Cadbury's... Uh, I was a victim of their false advertising. Basically, what happened was what was on the outside didn't match up with what was on the inside. And this is the same. This is Paul's warning to the Galatians here. Not about the horrors of Cadbury's, but about outward appearances and inward realities. About what we present on the outside. It says in verse 12 this, Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of the Christ, of the cross of Christ. So like we've been hearing about in this series, the Judaizers are the people who uh, think that we need to do works uh, to gain our salvation, whereas Paul is saying, no, it's not about that. It's about grace. And circumcision here is like the physical kind of symbol of that for them. It's the symbol of this belief that by doing something, they're made acceptable to God. And again, Paul has consistently been telling us that's not the case. That's absolute rubbish. It's about grace. In this verse, Paul is highlighting the fact that these Judaizers care more about the outward show or the flesh, as he puts it, than a real relationship with God. Rather than their faith being about inward change, it's about outward appearance. A bit like my cream egg it turns out to be hollow. On the surface, it's perfectly wrapped. It looks great. It looks really shiny and great, but as soon as you look inside, there's nothing of substance there. Paul is warning the Galatians uh, in this letter about the same thing in, in their walk with God, not to become a person who has a hollow faith. Um, I don't know if anyone's heard of 
Leinster Gardens. It's a street in London. Maybe some of you have heard of it, maybe not. Um, and if you went to Leinster Gardens, it would just look like a normal street if you were walking down it. Dramatic pause. Um, it just looks like a normal street. You just go down, there's houses everywhere, it's all fine. But the thing that makes it interesting, houses 23 and 24 in Leinster Gardens, if you go up to them and you look closely, you go to the door, there's no doorknob on it. And if you look into the windows, you find that they're not actually windows, they're just glass that's been painted over. What's going on here? Basically, it's just a front. Behind 23-24 Leinster Gardens is where the underground goes, is where the subway is in London. And if you kind of went over to the other side, you would see that it's not a house, it's just a five-foot thick wall, and there's nothing actually there. And it looks, it looks so real, though, from the outside. It looks so convincing that you wouldn't look twice. And there was actually a guy in the 1930s who was a con man, and he convinced like tons and tons of people that there was going to be a charity ball there. And he charged 10 guineas, which is probably a lot of money, I'm not sure, but 10 guineas each to all these people to go to this charity ball to this fake house. And they were absolutely gutted when they got there. And he made a small fortune off the back of it. But the, that picture, that image of this kind of fake house is a bit like the Judaizers here. That kind of falseness. And you know what? It is something that God absolutely hates. It's something that he despises. Jesus accused the Pharisees of the same thing when he called them, you know, whitewashed tombs, or he said, your, your cups that are, are clean on the outside but filthy on the inside. He hates that. He hates having a front that looks good but when the inside isn't right. So Paul is reminding us in this passage, he's warning us against this empty and hollow faith that Judaizers have, that it's not okay just to have everything kind of looking sparkly on the surface. He highlights the kind of the two things that, that pull the Judaizers into this, kind of their motivation that makes them live in this way. Two things. The first thing that he says is they have a desire to impress people, which is a huge thing. It's a huge, huge thing, this idea of people-pleasing that maybe for a lot, of, a lot of us maybe seems like kind of hardwired into us. It's almost, like, it's almost like a natural thing. I remember we were at the leadership conference not long ago uh, in January, and uh, there was probably like 130 people in the room or something like that. And the guy speaking just said, you know, if people pleasing, if a fear of people is, is an issue for you, we, we want to pray again. We want to pray about that. Would you stand up now? And literally out of like 130 odd people, I think only two people didn't stand up. And the guy was just like, wow, you're all, you're all terrified of each other. <laughs> and it was, it was just so ridiculous. But it's a thing that so many of us um, struggle with, this idea of either wanting kind of acceptance and approval from other people and wanting them, wanting praise for them, wanting applause for them, or either a kind of a fear of, uh, oops, sorry, yeah, want, wanting applause for them or just like a fear of kind of like letting them down and kind of not living up to their expectations. It can be a thing that's so easy to slip into. So the first thing that the motivation that pulls the Judaizers in is impressing other people. And the second thing that Paul highlights is avoiding persecution. This idea that, you know, for the Galatian Christians to be circumcised, to do this outward thing, um, would have made life a lot easier for them. It would have made their belief, their, their, their faith more palatable to the Jewish people that were around them at the time. And so there's this temptation, this pressure to conform. Basically, it's taking the easy way out. It's kind of, it's easy 
for us, isn't it, to play down what we believe about Jesus when we're in a situation like we're at work or we're with people and friends who don't believe Jesus. It's easy to take the easy way out. And in the same way that 23 and 24 Leinster Gardens that I was talking about, you know, that, that front, that household would be so much easier to maintain than a real house. Do you know what I mean? It's not like you wouldn't have to, like, cook, clean, wash. You wouldn't have to do anything because literally all it is is a front. All it is is, like, a facade because it's the same with a faith that's like that, actually. It's the same with when our faith is like that. It's, it's a comfortable thing. All it demands is an external show. And all it demands is ceremony. We just do and say the right things on the surface. But inside, our hearts aren't changed. Inside, we're not moved. In Isaiah 29, God says this. These are really challenging words. He says this. These people come near to me with their mouth. And they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. And it was a really challenging words to hear. Over the last few months in church, actually, there's been an illustration that's been used a couple of times about our relationship with God being like an iceberg. And the idea being that if you, if you look at an iceberg, the tip of the iceberg is all you'll see above the surface. But the idea is that underneath there is loads of iceberg. There is loads of depth. And that our relationship with God should be like that. It should be meters and meters, even kilometers of just depth and intimacy and relationship with God with only the tip showing on the surface. And when I think of relationships in my life with people that are important to me, it does feel a bit like that. You know, with certain people that, like, I, would, that I feel really close to, um, you know, there's stuff that I've shared with those people that no one else knows about. You know, there's weird in-jokes that other people will be like, what? What are you on about? Or there's kind of experiences I know that I've shared with that person that no one else has. In other words, what people see in that relationship is just a tip of the iceberg. It's just a little bit just seen on the surface. It's a very small part of what's actually going on underneath. And on the other hand, there's a lot of people in my life that I don't have a deep relationship with that is very much surface. Maybe I don't know the person particularly well. I might have a laugh may have some small talk and, and that, but it doesn't really go much deeper than that. And that's fine. You can't get to know everyone on a super deep level. That's okay. But the question is, we need to ask ourselves today, out of those two things, out of a relationship that is deep or a relationship that is just surface, where are we at with God today? Which one best describes where we're at with God? Is our relationship one that's real, that has substance, that's like a cream egg that is full in a way? Or is it not? Are we diving into the depths of knowing him intimately? Or is it a bit of a front? Are we settling for kind of surface? So Paul here is warning us about this. He's warning us to examine what is our motivation for, for doing stuff? Is it for people pleasing? Is it for the praise of others? Is it because of our fear of them? Or is it because is it easier just to let things be superficial with our walk with God, to not open ourselves up to being challenged by Him, and so we can feel like we're the ones in control? We need to give a relationship with God a health check. You know, I desperately don't want to be someone who's surface in my relationship with God in my life as a Christian. I don't want to be someone who's like, what you see is what you get. Like this is it. I want to be a person who has depth. 
I want to be the kind of person who knows God intimately and has a relationship with him that's real and that spills out to other people. And the Judaizers here we've been talking about relied on circumcision to make them righteous. And we're actually called to rely on a different kind of circumcision. Uh, There's a verse in Deuteronomy that says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. How good is that? God wants to circumcise our hearts, not an outward physical show of the flesh, but a deep inward spiritual thing. He wants to take away the parts of us that aren't good, that aren't right, and he wants to challenge our motivations when they've come out of place and bring us back to a place of depth and real relationship and intimacy with him. So Paul gives us a warning to receive, and Paul also gives us an example to follow. Uh, My PE teacher in high school was a short, hairy Welshman uh, called Mr. Morris. Uh, I really liked him. He was a good guy, but he was the kind of guy who, you know, you get those motivational kind of posters that say things like teamwork, and then there's a picture of like birds in like a flying V and that kind of thing. Or I was, I was looking up some of these it's phrases like, dreams don't work unless you do, uh, were held back by fear, not limitation. Or I quite like this one, be the person your dog thinks you are. That's quite a good one. Uh, he, was, he was one of those people Uh, There was a bit like one of these posters. He was a motivator. He was a guy who was like, just wanted to inspire you, wanted to get the most out of his students. His favorite phrase was, maximize your potential. That's a pretty good Welsh accent there. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Maximize your potential. He'd always say it, and this was like his kind of thing. And he'd always say as well, um, he wouldn't say practice makes perfect. He'd say perfect practice makes perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. So whatever it is we were doing that day, whether it was like learning to throw a javelin, uh, do a layup in basketball, or whatever, he would demonstrate how to do it first. He would show us what to do, and then he would break down like every single movement of what he was doing, like every grip where his hand was, all that kind of stuff. And then he would make us, re- he would make us imitate it, and he would make us do it again and again and again until we got it right. Perfect practice makes perfect. Whereas other PE teachers would just be like, oh, just throw the javelins, you know, shoot some hoops, it's all fine. But he was like, no, I want you to do it right. I want you to do it properly. So he'd show us what to do, walk us through step by step. And then he'd watch, it, watch us kind of try it out. And he'd come along and he'd make small corrections. He'd be like, oh, your grip's not quite right there. You need to, you know, shift your weight onto that foot and all this kind of stuff. Because it was important to him that we got it right. And it's the same here with Paul, what's going on in this letter, in this part of Galatians. It seems that a lot of the time what Paul's been saying to them has been quite harsh. And Paul isn't happy with the way things have gone with them. But in this last section that's written in his own hand, we've got a picture of a man who loves these people dearly and who wants the best for them. He wants the best that God has for them. So in verse 13 and 14, it says, they want you to be circumcised. The Judaizers want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's like Paul is a bit like my PE teacher here. He wants to demonstrate and he wants them to follow his example of how to live. He uses the, the pledge that he lives by, the kind of statement of may I never boast except in the cross. And he uses that as an example for them of how to do the same. But boast in the cross, what does that mean? When I think of boasting, I think of kids in the playground being like, 
I got an Xbox for Christmas. I was like, well, I got an Xbox, a laptop, and a television set, actually. Or, my, my dad can beat your dad. I don't know why these kids are very posh, uh, but anyway, in my head, that's, that's what happens. Uh, so the word, the word boast here seems like a negative thing, but it's also translated as the word uh, exult, like exultation like kind of to be joyful, to, to rejoice in something, boast. It's kind of having an ecstatic, euphoric feeling, kind of like a triumphant elation. And also the root for the word boast means living with head held high. And it's likely to come uh, for the word for neck. So it's meaning it's like the neck is supporting the head. It's like kind of supporting this boast, holding the head up high. So as well as the cross being our source of joy, a kind of elation, it also gives us our confidence. It's the strength that allows us to hold our heads up high. So that sounds good, doesn't it? But is Paul just saying boast in the cross? Is he just saying boast in the cross? No, he says something different. He says, may I never boast in anything except the cross, only boast in the cross. So it's a bit like my PE teacher, Mr. Morris, watching us throw javelins and kind of correcting the motions and the kind of grips that we have and taking out the bad habits. Paul wants them to get rid of all boasting in their works, in circumcision, in anything else. The idea that they've earned salvation for themselves, that they're still earning it. He wants to get rid of all that stuff and for that to go until only the cross is left. Only the cross is left. And like kind of throwing the javelin correctly, it's like one kind of fluid motion, only the cross, nothing else. But what does boasting, exulting in the cross and only the cross look like then? Surely it's okay to boast, it's okay to exult, it's okay to find joy in other things other than the fact that Jesus died. I think of when I was a baby, obviously I don't remember that time particularly well, but I imagine that when I took my first steps, when I started speaking, when I was going, mama, dada, gaga, when I started doing all that stuff, that my parents were proud, that they felt like boasting, that this, this was a good thing, that they wanted to rejoice in this, if you like. Or my, my, when I said my first sentence, which was apparently, uh, want to see gnomes in garden. You can see I'm, I was very much the party animal you see before me today, even back then. Uh, but in those moments, surely it was okay for my parents to be like, yeah, this is great. This is fantastic. This is a good thing. You know, were they wrong? Should I call up my parents at lunchtime and be like, guys, need to repent. The Bible says boast only in the cross. I'm sorry. No, not quite. It's as Christians, all boasting and exalting needs to be boasting and exalting in the cross. If you feel pride and joy because your child worked hard and got into university, exult in the cross. If you pass your driving test, exult in the cross. Uh, if you get a tax return you weren't expecting or whatever, exult in the cross. Why? There's a, a pastor in America called John Piper who puts it like this. This is good. He says, as redeemed sinners, every good thing and every bad thing that God turns for good was obtained for us by the cross of Christ. Apart from the death of Christ, sinners get nothing but judgment. Apart from the cross of Christ, there's only condemnation. Therefore, everything that you enjoy in Christ, everything you boast in, everything you exult in, is owing to the death of Christ. And your exaltation in other things is to be an exaltation in the cross, where all your blessings were purchased for you at the, cross, at the cost of Christ's life. Um, so a way to maybe explain this, like me, me and Hazel are big fans of suits, 
the TV programs, not suits, well, <laughs> the suits are fine, I guess. But um, the TV program suits, is anyone else a fan? A few? Yeah. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, and we're watching it at the minute. It's, if you haven't seen it, it's basically about lawyers working in a law firm. It's really good fun. It's very good. A lot of the law stuff kind of goes over my head, but it's great. Uh, but we're up to a point in it at the minute where the law firm is in big financial trouble. They're, they're running out of money, and it's, for all intents and purposes, it looks like they might even close, that people are going to lose their jobs, and they're going to have to shut the place down. And uh, what happens is that another company comes in and effectively rescues them. Another company comes in and invests money and keeps things going and saves them. So this new company provides the money that they need. The firm is saved. Um, and as a result of that, what actually happens is the name of this other company gets merged with the firm. So on the door, you have the name of this new company as well. On the letterheads of every piece of paper, you have the name of this company. On every pen, you have the name of this new company. And even every employee would now say, I'm a lawyer that works at, and then this new company's name. Everything changes. And this is a similar picture to what Jesus has done on the cross. He comes in when we couldn't save ourselves, and he rescues us. And like the law firm in suits, his name is on the door. And not only is, on his, is it on the door, but his name is also um, on every letterhead, on every pen, on every person, on every employee that's been saved. And it's this idea that not only have we personally been bought by Jesus, but, you know, the pens, everything else. It's like every blessing, every good thing we get to enjoy that's still around is because of Jesus and his name is on it. Because of the cross, we get to enjoy that stuff. And that's what boasting in the cross looks like. I love that it's not only in the blessings, but it's also in the tough times as well, the bad that God can turn to good. Roman, Romans 5 says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also glory or boast in our sufferings because we know suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. You know, when life is difficult, even in those times, we can find joy in the cross and in the victory that Jesus has won and in the bad situations that God can turn to good. All of this is about the context of the cross and our boast being in that. And Paul is saying to us, follow my example. Do what I do. What a challenge for us to do the same, to boast in the cross in every situation. And finally, Paul leaves us with a reminder to live by. Um, I've been reading up on caterpillars. You'll be interested to know. Um, specifically about the change or metamorphosis, as I now know it's called, that takes place when they turn into butterflies. So I'm going to talk very briefly about this process. Um, so we start off with our, our familiar friend, the very hungry caterpillar, born from the egg. And uh, what does he do? He eats and eats and eats and eats, and he gets bigger. And then he eats and eats and eats, and he gets bigger and he gets bigger. And as he's getting bigger, he molts uh, five to six times. And eventually, when he's big enough, the caterpillar finds a twig or a leaf, and then he hangs from it, and he spins a cocoon, and then he's in the cocoon, and then that's when the, the exciting stuff happens. When, that's when the transformation starts to occur. Uh, we're going to get a bit technical now. The caterpillar contains very tiny groups of cells at this point called imaginal disks. So these are similar to embryonic cells. These disks rapidly divide to form wings, antennae, uh, legs, eyes, all the parts of the butterfly that you can think of. 
But what's the fuel that these cells use for this division? What's the stuff that, that powers this process? It's a little bit disgusting. It's actually caterpillar soup. Because what happens is once the cocoon is formed, the caterpillar releases enzymes which digest itself. And all its tissues and its body parts are dissolved, creating a kind of caterpillar goo or soup. You can probably feel your breakfast coming up right now. Apologies for that. But this caterpillar soup is what's used to fuel this division. And a week or so later, a beautiful, beautiful butterfly is born and breaks out of the, co the cocoon. That's lovely. You can probably see where I'm going with that picture. Uh, Paul's reminder to the Galatians is like the butterfly being a new creation. They become a new creation. It says in verse 14 and 15, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What counts is the new creation. So not only is the butterfly physically different from the caterpillar that it once was, but even its behavior has changed as well. Everything seems to get better for the butterfly. No longer is it kind of eat, just eating leaves all day, nothing but leaves, but instead it now is to, get to eat sweet nectar. Very fun. And no longer is it kind of crawling and kind of clinging onto like trees and plants and stuff, but it can fly and it can kind of go where it wants. So you have this picture of a new creation, a new birth, a new life. From the old, something completely new has come about. And this is what's happened when people become Christians. So this is what Paul was saying to the Galatians. You've become a new creation. And the Judaizers want to pull them back into the shell of their own lives, into that cocoon, the restrictions that they were freed from. And Paul is saying, no, you don't need to. You don't need to kind of squeeze your way back into the cocoon. The idea of doing that it just seems ridiculous once you have this new freedom that God has given you. So Paul, in this last passage, is trying to pull the Galatians away from a faith that is based on works and take them away from their old patterns of behavior. And he's reminding us that we are no longer bound by these past behaviors. You know, like the butterfly, even our very nature is changed. And as the Holy Spirit enters us and begins to work in our hearts, we don't, go, we don't have to go back to the old things, the lesser things of the past, the leaves and the plants and all that stuff. This doesn't mean that we become perfect, that when we become Christians, we never make mistakes. But the Holy Spirit works in us day by day, and it's His will that over time we become more like Jesus. We sin less, and we hate sin more and more. We're no longer a slave to sin, but the choice to let sin rule over us. Uh, we have the choice to let sin rule over us or to live in Christ. And we see this when Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. When we come to know Jesus, we're made new. And that's a promise for each one of us here. Each one of us who have come to know God, we are a new creation in him. And in Romans, Paul says this as well, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign over your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Rather, offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. It's clear that death's involved here in some way. Uh, in the same way that the caterpillar effectively has to die, it's a bit sad, the caterpillar kind of dies and it goes into caterpillar soup. Um, that's kind of what happens in us. Not physically, obviously, that would be unsettling. But what happens is that our old life, our old ways are dissolved. They're destroyed and new life comes. And it's in Jesus' sacrifice, him dying, him giving up his life, that this is possible. Our old sinful self is put to death. 
Paul says, the the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's a separation from his old life, from the old Paul and the power that the world had over him. And that claim is no longer there. And you know what? For so many of us, going through life as Christians, the enemy wants us to believe that we're still in that old life. He wants us to believe that we're still under that power of sin and of the world and that we can never beat that addiction or never rid ourselves of that anger issue or never be free from the guilt of the past and be stuck in a cycle of sin and shame. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not right. You are a new creation. You have been made new in God. There's a transformation in you, and he is changing you day by day to become more like him. Finally, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is the new creation Paul's speaking about, Christ living in him. In each one of us, Christ lives in us. And that's an incredible hope. That's an amazing statement. When we've given our lives to God, we can be confident that he is in us. And if that is true, then let's walk in it. Let's walk in that freedom, the freedom that God desires for each of us. Let's not be like butterflies that are still in caterpillar mode, walking along the leaves and eating leaves and kind of staying there. Let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's live in a way where there's grace at every turn and we're continually being transformed into Jesus' image. So this morning, let's, let's listen to Paul. Let's listen to the warning against a faith that is all surface. Let's follow his example of boasting in the cross at every turn. And finally, let's never forget the freedom from the world and the new life that Jesus has given us and calls us to walk in. Why don't we stand?